The Supreme Court has ruled that a group of Uber drivers must now, be treated as workers rather than self-employed, a decision which means they could be entitled to a minimum wage and On Friday the 18th of February, the Supreme Court announced its judgment on the case Uber versus Aslam, rejecting Uber's appeal and declaring that two of its drivers, Yassine Aslam and James Farrar, must be classified as workers. This was the end of five years of legal challenges, with Uber taking its appeal to the highest court in the land. For Yassine Aslam, it was seven years in the making, and he finds it hard to articulate his thoughts and emotions that day. Well, I mean, it is a long, hard day, you know. Even though, like, um, the whole state, like, even since we won in 2016, I was always confident we're going to win, yeah? But in the back of the head, uh, like, you still, there's still a bit of uncertainty what's going to happen. And this Supreme Court will make or break, you know? It's like, we're either going to win or we're going to lose. And if we lose, we're, you know, we're damned. You know, it's, you know, it puts us back to square one. Like, this is seven years of my life. I mean, it's just so hard to describe because everything happens so quickly and so fast. But I still remember, like, when the when the uh, when they were playing and we were watching it outside, uh, and the justice said appeal dismissed. But up to then, I was my mind was preoccupied. We were trying to we were getting calls coming in from media, and I wanted to keep myself preoccupied because, you know, like I said, it's we're average people. It's all about emotions, everything. And one of the things is never show weakness. And even though we had our ups and downs, it's always about staying positive. So my way around that was not to think about it and try and work. But the minute that we heard appeal dismissed... Supreme Court unanimously dismisses Uber's appeal. I looked at James quickly, like, you know, like, and then, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it is yes. Yeah. Uh, and we just like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's just, I, can't, I just can't find a word to describe it. I'm Robbie Waring, and this is the Fair Work Podcast. A dive into the lives of the people working within the gig economy. This episode looks at contracts. And in it, we hear from Yassine Aslam, the former Uber driver who successfully took them to court over his classification as a self-employed independent contractor. A ruling that has implications for the gig economy around the world. The interviews for this episode took place in two parts, one before the final ruling and one immediately after. In it, we hear Yassine's personal account of what it is like taking on a multinational corporation, organising gig workers in the UK and what made him do it. My name's Yassine Aslam, so I'm one of the claimants against uh, Uber, which we filed in 2015. So I actually come into this industry back in 2006 when I was made uh, redundant in my IT job. Um, Uber arrived in the UK in 2012. That's when I first registered with them. Yassine was one of the first 100 drivers to sign up for the Uber platform when it first came to London. And at the time, he and many other drivers just didn't think it would work. It was like, we just didn't understand how they're going to do it without a human. How is this app going to work? But many drivers were excited about the potential impact that these new technologies held and their ability to make the distribution of work fairer. One of the problems we had at the traditional um, cab office was there, there was a human 
like a controller who would dispatch jobs to you. There's a favoritism system. And what we find in this industry is there's a lot of discrimination. One of the things that really attract people to Uber was the fact that there is no controller. And you just, you know, like you just turn the app on, you work when you want, you go home when you want. So it's that element of flexibility and the freedom. You know, so I, I didn't really face too much problem at the previous cab office. But uh, there were a lot of drivers that, you know, um, you know, had it hard. And, and you'll get a lot of controllers where they request the driver buy them cigarettes, buy them a donut kebab or something, you know. So if you weren't doing that, they'll just make your day hard. They'll give you shit jobs. Uh, you know, they'll, you know, like, so, so the point was, if you could get the controller on side and you're willing to feed the controller, you know, you, you'll you get looked after. Where when you come over to Uber, it's a completely different system. There's no favorism and stuff like that. In the beginning, Yassine didn't fully grasp the implications surrounding Uber's use of technology, nor its potential impacts on the private hire market. But yeah, I mean, the point is when it, we first started and yeah, it just clicked. So for me, it was nothing different. It was just another cab office just giving me work to do. That's the way I saw it. But the good thing about this was I was in control. I didn't have to tell them that I'm coming to work at this time or I want to go home at this time. Yeah. Or, um, you know, like someone ringing me saying, put your foot down. We're running late. We've got uh, so many jobs waiting. Hurry up. You know, like that kind of stuff. I didn't have all that. So I was in sort of that was to me was a good element. And that's what attracts a lot of drivers to it. But what we found is over time, is all that thing, the control element started changing. We then started seeing the other side. And that was like, look, you know, we go, we're running away from all these humans, but we're now being controlled by uh, an app, a technology and all these algorithms. So for example, when I picked up a passenger, you know, he would rate me five stars. So in order to stay on the platform, I have to maintain a high rating. So just to give you an average example, to stay on UberX platform, you need to have a rating of 4.4. You know, like we, we were getting drivers getting deactivated because someone left them a bad feedback. So we're now being, we're now at a mercy of uh, um, the rating system. So that's like a pressure on us indirectly, which we didn't realize uh, and we started seeing afterwards. What we saw, so although we're running away from the human controller saying this is better, what we're now seeing is a hidden human behind the app controlling us and doing things to make us work a certain way. This creeping sense of control and the power that the app played in shaping the lives of workers would lay the groundwork for his subsequent legal case. Yassin says there were numerous points where it became increasingly prevalent that the freedom he felt had limits. One evening, on a busy night in London, Yassim received a request at 1am to pick up three men outside a bar. Now, they were quite drunk. Um, as soon as they got into the car, they made some kind of a, a racist comment towards me. And uh, I sort of, because I got this experience of dri driving and dealing with customers, you sort of could tend, and I'd rather not go ahead if I could, um, you know... Um, because if you... I mean, it's sort of like a gut feeling, so I knew this going to escalate. So anyway, I just um, was very polite to those guys. I said, look, yes, uh, um, if you could, I'm happy to drop you off from uh, wherever you're going, but I just need you to be polite. Um, and that's it. So as we were driving towards um, Fulham High Street, they just carried on giving me abuse one after another. So I knew that if I carry on driving, especially once we get out of, uh, you know, like these built up areas, 
And if it did, if something did kick off or something happened, you know, I will, you know, I was all alone. I'm in my car alone with three people, uh, and there's no one to help me in any shape or form. So it's always best to end the journey and stop it in an area where at least I could get some help if I needed to. Yeah. So I stopped on the high street because uh, you got cameras everywhere, so you know you're being watched and everything is okay. So I told these guys that look, I'm not gonna. Um, I'm refusing to take you because of your behavior and I got out of my car uh, and they wouldn't leave. Yassin called the police and the men finally left, after which he contacted Uber to tell them about the incident and why he cancelled the trip. Uber then come back to me saying, you can't do that. You can't. Basically, what they're trying to say is I kick people out of my car and if I ever do it again, I will be dismissed from the platform. So there's me, like, potentially trying to, um, you know, um, limit my damage. And, you know, and I'm getting warned for, you know, you know, for doing something that potentially could have, you know, like I could have got beaten up or something bad could have happened. But I just done what my gut feeling was, was refused to take them further. Yeah. And they were welcome to book another cab and carry on from there. But I'm getting warned for doing that. As Yassin became aware of the issues that many drivers were facing, he started to actively campaign for the rights of him and his fellow drivers, forming an association of drivers in 2014 before joining GMB Union in 2015. But his actions didn't go unnoticed by Uber. One day in 2015, as he began the drive from his home in High Wycombe into central London, he reached for his phone and opened the Uber app as he had done countless times before. And I tried to log on and it wouldn't let me. So I thought maybe it might be an app problem or a glitch or something. So I carried on driving all the way into London. Then I stopped again and tried it again. And I kept on trying, trying. And then I stopped like once I got to central London and it didn't work, you know? So that like technically an hour waited. And I emailed Uber saying, look, I can't log on, what's happening? But um, yeah, so then I drove back home again. But, you know, like in my head, I was thinking like, you know, I need the money because I needed the money that week. I took three days off and I was back to work for that day. But I wasn't told that I'd been blocked from the app. You know, I got deactivated. So when I first got deactivated, I didn't do anything wrong. I got deactivated for my campaigning. So, you know, like it put me as financially, um, you know, I needed that money. And B, it's that stress, like, what's happening? Why can't I log in? What did I do? What did I do wrong? Did, did the customer make a complaint against me? You know, like, all that kind of sort. But I can't remember, like, it's hard to explain at the motion, but it's like you just suddenly, you know, like, you went to work and the door's locked or they changed the lock at your workplace and you can't get in. So I then arranged to meet one of the managers. So I went back into Uber's office a week later. So the whole week I couldn't work. Yeah, so I went into Uber's office, I had a good long chat with the manager saying, look, come on, what did I do wrong? And it is more like their way of trying to intimidate me to say, look, what you're doing is you're making good money, uh, you're doing all right, so why are you causing problems? Uh, you know, you should just get on, put your head down and work and you'll be okay. But if you're going to do, you know, if you're going to be concerned about other drivers and stuff like that, you know, um, you're going to lose your access, yeah? And I didn't like the way they sort of threatened me. And that was their way to sort of send me a strong message, yeah? So if anything, when I walked out of that meeting, I was more than, um, I was even more motivated to do what I was doing, you know, to help drivers, because I just didn't like the way they tried to bully me. 
alongside the threats he received from Uber, Yassi was spurred on by what he saw around him and the stories he heard from other drivers. He saw many of his friends be deactivated and lose all or part of their livelihood. But what really hit home was the massive imbalance of power between drivers and the platform and the total lack of protections afforded to drivers in the face of countless cases of passengers abusing drivers. What really concerned me, which was close to heart for me, was um, there's a lot of racism uh, attacks toward drivers and abuse. So in a nutshell, you could sit in my car, uh, call me, a, you know, like, you know, be as, call me whatever you want, refer to my skin color, <clears throat> give me as much abuse as you want. And then at the end of the journey, you could then put a one star and write a comment saying, this was the worst driver ever and I want a full refund. Yeah. And there's me that suffered all this abuse from you, maybe even physically assaulted by you. And then Uber's telling me, I'm not gonna, we'll have to give a refund to this customer because, you know, uh, he made a complaint. Um, you know, I had no, con- and that is like, to me, like, look, this can't be right. One particular story sticks out to Yasin when he got a call from a driver he knew who had been physically assaulted and he drove round to his house to pay him a visit. Yeah, so I went to see this guy, 60 years old, uh, who got assaulted by a passenger uh, late night and the police did come onto the scene and he's reported it to the police. Um, but then Uber sort of failed to cooperate with the police and when I spoke to the driver again, I went to see him again down his house. Um, he had a swollen up eye. Um, I asked him what's, what's happening and he said, look, the police can't get hold of the passenger because Uber haven't given him the details and um, yeah, so I just don't have the time to go and chase up the police. So I said, look, come on, this is not right. I'll go with you and let's report it uh, and let's push the police and try and get something done because you can't have a person assault you and then get away with it. I mean, it's not it's not right. But he turned around and what I and they still sit in my head the way he said it. And he said it in our language. He's the same guy, a Pakistani guy. And he called me like son. He referred to me as son. And he said, son, this is part of my job. You know, so if we're going to get punched and abused, you know, and the way he said it, and it still sits in my bed like, look, you know, this is not our job to get assaulted. It's not something we should be putting up with. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's my, like, a lot of people sort of live with that assumption, thinking it's okay to receive abuse, it's okay to get physically attacked in their job, and it's okay, but it's not okay. And the reason they have that mindset is the lack of support from the police, lack of support from uh, operators like Uber. You know, so they, they, they're happy to turn a blind eye to that, you know, so they're happy to allow that kind of abuse. And that's what we've been highlighting. And that's my passion really about this. That got me really uh, eager. So I then started every time I heard of a driver, I would write to Uber saying, look, could, what, what action are you taking against this rider? And they would never come back. Yeah. But the point was, they didn't really care. And that was the ticking point for me. Uber calls its drivers partners, independent operators who partner up with the tech firm. But judges in London have ruled they are the company's workers, with rights including the UK's minimum wage as well as sickness and holiday pay. In 2016, Yassine and his co-claimant James Farrar launched a case in the Employment Tribunal, arguing that they should be classed as workers 
a landmark case which they would go on to win. Yassin had already been trying to campaign for workers, but had reached a point where he felt legal action was the only way forward. There were issues like I was actually trying to do what I can to, um, you know, speak to Uber. But we were, we were just talking through a brick wall. Yeah. And like I said, it come to a stage where all the drivers that we had sort of gave up thinking there's nothing we could do. But the actual circumstances surrounding the case's conception were largely due to a series of chance encounters. I was speaking to a Guardian journalist at the time because he was talking to me about he's more interested in how we're organising Uber drivers. He attended a few of our meetings uh, and I told him about uh, when I got deactivated. So when I come out, you know, and one thing I mentioned to Uber at the time in that meeting was they had a problem with transport for London. They weren't checking documents properly. Um, so uh, there was an issue in terms of like, you know, like, um, you know, like with TFO where TFO was turning a blind eye. So I highlighted that. I said, look, you shouldn't be concerned about me. You should be concerned about what you're licensed to and make sure that you're adhering to your license condition. Yeah. Um, and they laughed at me. They laughed at me. So anyway, when I come out and I speak into this Guardian journalist and I mentioned to him that, look, uh, if you, you could upload a blank piece of paper as your insurance document uh, and no one checks it, the computer will think, yes, that's OK. You uploaded a piece of paper so we'll assume that's your insurance document and you can continue to work. So he then went and done his own independent um, research and they made their own insurance company called Free Now cover um, and they managed to get a driver and upload it but I was involved in that and I got deactivated for that so Uber then reported me to Transport for London Transport for London reported me to the police and I got arrested for it Um, I I was only a whistleblower at the time yeah so I went into the police station I confessed it to everything I said look I didn't do anything wrong I had genuine insurance at the time I had everything you know if any fraud were committed or any crime was committed committed by Uber but anyway, they decided to drop the case after six months. No charges were ever brought. But that's where the case started because I was already speaking to James Farrow and we were talking to Lee Day. Lee Day is the law firm who would go on to represent James and Yassin throughout their legal case. We were talking to Lee Day at that time of how we, like, what, what could we do to make to look at it and they looked at it and they said look there is something here you definitely need to the best thing to do is uh, launch a case uh, for the workers now you know like when I, when we looked at this worker status it answered all our problems now there's a bit of confusion about the worker status like drivers don't tend to understand it so you have uh, self-employed then you have the employees and then we have a limby worker. So a self-employed person would be someone that has more control, like a plumber, electrician. You could set your own fares. Uh, you don't have any rights, but you know you could subcontract your work and you're actually running your own business. As an employee, you have many rights. Like, for example, you get uh, sick pay, uh, maternity, paternity, pension, uh, you know, unfair dismissal, all that kind of stuff. Where in the middle, we have a limby status. Within UK employment law, Limby worker status is where an individual is classed as self-employed but is involved in running someone else's business. It operates as a halfway house, allowing workers to access some of the privileges afforded to contracted employees. Now, what the Limby worker does for us, and let's say if Uber did accept the law and decided to obey the law and classify us as a Limby worker, is there's three things. One is we have the right to earn the minimum wage. B, we get holiday pay. 
and see uh, trade union recognition. That's all it is. But what it done for us is it put a flaw on the market. Now, for me as a driver, I don't care whether Uber has one million drivers working for them. I don't care whether they charge 10p a mile or whether they charge four four pound a mile. What I care about what goes into my pocket. What I do want to know and the assurance I want to get is when I go out to work, knowing that I'm gonna come home with something, not just go out all night, be sleeping in my car, and coming back with no money. I asked Yasin about how it felt that first day going into court. Uh, believe me, um, that was a nightmare for me because by this time everyone had left us. Yeah, more or less. Um, you know, people sort of were thinking we we're just stupid people trying to fight a lost battle. Yeah, and nothing ever going to come out of this, and Uber's going to buy the judge and all kind of stuff. Uh, and that was the time when I was actually, during 2016, I actually went into a depression, a breakdown. Um, you know, mentally I wasn't well. Uh, financially, I had no source of income. Uh, I live in High Wycombe, so I had to go into London. It was a whole week trial. Um, where I had to go in, I was cross-examined by Uber's barristers, you know, and it wasn't easy. It was, it was, I mean, at that time I was thinking, you know, did I really have to get myself into this? Why, why am I doing this? You know, like all those kind of questions. But, you know, but we did it. I mean, I had James, James had me. So there's two of us working together trying to fight the same cause, which really worked and it helped. Because if I was alone, maybe I wouldn't have done it. Maybe I'd have walked away a long time ago. But, you know, because we took such... Uh, because we suffered so much financially, mentally, you know, all kinds of stuff. I just felt that I had to fight. If I walk away, that's me. You know, I wasted my life for the last three, four years or two years for doing what I was doing. You know, and I need to see it through. So it wasn't easy, it was really hard. But anyway, since when we got the verdict, damn, you know, that's when everything changed. So, so don't forget, like when we were in court for a week, it took about two or three months before we even got the wording. So, um, yeah, so it's just uh, everyone was happy. It's not just us. Every single driver, I was getting message from everyone and saying, well done, man. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, like, it, was, it was like finally we managed to take on Uber. So we were the first people to technically, without any resources, actually go in there, you know, and win. You know, and then there's Uber. They had... Like the barristers, solicitors, everyone telling them what to say. And we're just like average guys with no money, just enough money to get on the tube, walk into the tribunal, sit there, get cross-examined, but stand our ground and, and then win. You know, it just, it's just amazing, man. It's amazing. But it's hard to describe that. But but what was sad about it is knowing that Uber immediately uh, said they're going to appeal it. So it wasn't like, um, yeah, I mean, it just just like it, we were really happy. But at the same time, it was like saying, look, this is not the end of it. This is just the start of something big. Get up, stand up. 
Stand up for your rights. Yes, stand up. Don't give up the fight. We took Tuberon. We beat them in Siberian. And now we're going to beat them again. Thank you, everyone. Yassine and James would end up going through four separate court cases as Uber worked its way through the appeals process. But finally, in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court ruled that within UK law, James and Yassine should be classified as Lim B workers. I caught up with Yassine a few days after the Supreme Court verdict and asked him about what it was like hearing that they had finally won their case and how he felt knowing that it was finally over. So, yeah, it's just that minute. It's like shock. But to be honest, I was, um, even though, like, I was happy, overjoyed, but it's sort of like the next day, I was still, like, it's like it didn't really sink in. You know, like, um, we won, you know? Like, uh, it just, like, it just seemed like it didn't happen. You know, because, I don't know, I can't find the word, because we went through hell and back all this years. And it's just like suddenly to see justice. You know, it just seemed like it never, you know, it's just um, like a move that suddenly happened. You know, but but the main thing is, look, you know, we won. We've done it, yeah? Um, and it was worth it. It was worth it because it means I could now look in my kids' eye, uh, you know, my family. You know, I went through a phrase where I suffered depression, severe depression in 2016. You know, like I suffered financially, you know, uh, and I, I contributed most of my seven years into this cause. And it wasn't a waste of time. But at the same time, it's just there's nothing better than knowing that you have something to show for it. And that is the most important thing. So it's like, you know, like you go into a fight, you train. You train and you train before you go into that fight. You don't know if you're going to win 100%, but you train your hardest. And that was us. We trained, we won that every round and we knocked them out. We knocked out Uber. And that's the main thing. You know, there were times during the last seven years where I was down and I did question myself, like, why am I doing this? Because don't forget, I left the trade. And why am I doing this? But then again, I owe it to the driver's community because even though I started this myself back in the days, you know, they're the ones that were behind me. You know, it's the people within ADCU. ADCU is the name of the union started by James and Yassine last year to represent private hire drivers and couriers. You know, it's the people within ADCU that joined because everyone talks about drivers not being organised because they're isolated or whatever. But we actually smashed that apart. And since Friday, uh, since we won, you know, we're just like signing people up, like, like as I mentioned to you earlier on, we're hitting 200 people a day, you know? And that shows that people are no longer afraid. And workers finally know that, look, as long as you're adamant and you're willing to fight this, there is justice there. Thanks to Yassin Aslam for sharing his story. A key question surrounding this case is what are the potential ramifications of this ruling for Uber drivers and workers in the entire gig economy? Kelly Howson is a postdoctoral researcher at the Fair Work Foundation. I think there are a few implications and to a certain extent, we need to wait and see how things are going to play out. Um, Whether, you know, Uber can do one of two things now. They can give their drivers more control over their rates of pay, their working hours, their contracts, 
um, in order to actually meet the the criteria for being self-employed or they need to uh, comply with the regulations and protections for workers. And my understanding is that there are a lot of driver cases pending now. So there is something like 15,000 cases where drivers are waiting for compensation from Uber now that this ruling has been made. So Uber is in a position of, of potentially having to pay out quite a lot of money as a result of this ruling. Um, even though Uber is claiming that this ruling only applies to a small number of workers who were directly involved in this case um, and worked for Uber in 2016, it's pretty clear that it has much broader implications for Uber drivers now and beyond that, for other workers in the gig economy at large. You know, there are many, many gig economy companies in the UK who have very similar models to that of Uber, where they classify their workers as self-employed. And that extends beyond the like taxi and e-hailing sector to domestic work, um, care work, and even remote uh, remote work done via web-based platforms. So a lot of workers in those industries might now be looking at the outcome of this case and be encouraged to bring similar litigation against the platforms that they work for. Uh, So I think a lot of large gig economy companies in the UK, including Deliveroo, who has been the subject of, of similar litigation in the past, will be looking at this and considering the implications for them. Um, but in terms of the immediate implications of classifying workers as, of classifying Uber drivers as workers or forcing Uber to address the misclassification of workers, um, is that those drivers will now be subject to really important basic protections that should characterize all work. And those include minimum wage and holiday pay. And the unanimous decision that the Supreme Court made in favour of these drivers is a huge step forward in providing very basic but very important protections for Uber drivers and potentially for other gig workers in future. However, the flip side of this judgment is the uncertainty surrounding how Uber itself will respond. Well, we've seen some commentators arguing that this signals the legal end of the road for Uber's uh, Uber's labour practices. But I think that it's really important to be a bit cautious about making those kinds of claims because around the world we've seen Uber deploying um, very innovative strategies to evade regulation where it has, where they have been subject to regulation that that threatens to undermine their business model. Um, We've seen two quite recent examples of this. One is their response to the AB5 legislation in California, which introduced a higher statutory test for what constitutes an employee and would have uh, classified Uber drivers and other gig workers as employees. In response, Uber, uh, alongside a few other big gig economy platforms, including Lyft, um, 
introduced a ballot measure, Proposition 22, which represented a kind of intermediate regulatory ground where uh, gig workers weren't subject to the same level of protections as employees, but had some concessions, some limited benefits. And so this was a way of enshrining the independent contractor status of gig workers. And Uber put a lot of money behind that campaign, um, a huge amount of lobbying, a huge amount of resources in order to get that ballot measure passed. Now the European Commission is launching a consultation just this week on regulating platform work to try to address some of the unfairness and vulnerability and precariousness that uh, platform workers have been subject to. And this, is, this has been really uh, starkly highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So ahead of the launch of this consultation, Uber released a white paper um, about regulation in Europe, regulation of platform work in Europe, essentially arguing for a similar thing to what they did in California. The white paper is framed in terms of building a partnership for a fairer future of platform work. But what it's really arguing for is a new, new regulation, which would, again, um, kind of enshrine and codify this model of, of independent work. Um, and create a class of workers well the class of workers has already been created but perpetuate the uh, race to the bottom of labor standards essentially so this is a really significant decision which uh, might optimistically be a tipping point for addressing unfair practices in the platform economy uh, and for encouraging more and more workers to, to stand up against misclassification in other sectors and in other countries. Uh, however, um, the other possibility is a doubling down um, of platform companies' attempts to lobby, to change regulations in order to um, continue their business practices, which leave more and more workers worldwide um, kind of dependent on these precarious situations and dependent on platforms which have all the control over the working conditions and um, over their livelihoods. And that's really what the Supreme Court identified uh, in their ruling. Thanks to Yasin Aslan and Kelly Howson. At Fair Work, we believe that all work can and should be characterised by fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. In the UK, the vast majority of gig workers are classed as self-employed independent contractors meaning they have no access to basic rights like minimum wage, sick pay and holiday pay. Platforms can improve the work they provide by providing the basic provisions such as minimum wage, sick pay and union representation that we believe should characterise all work regardless of its legal classification. 
We're actively campaigning to improve the conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work. This episode was written and produced by Robbie Waring with composition by Louis Bollet's and additional composition by Robbie Waring.